Please uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's see. Children are going out. And we will be looking at verses 15 to 21 this morning. Is, uh, or the past several weeks, we were looking at uh, Paul's anthem of praise in uh, verse 3 to 14, and now he kind of uh, responds or reflects upon that anthem of praise as he um, speaks to the Ephesians of um, the content of his prayers for them. I'm going to read uh, verse 15 to 21. Read along with me. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you... The eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, this word uh, recorded for us, for our instruction, this word written Uh, roughly 2,000 years ago to your people uh, for their instruction, for their edification, for their knowledge of you. Lord, help us to receive these words. Help us to understand them. Help us to remember them. Help us to apply them to our lives that we may grow in Christ's likeness. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that you would guide my tongue, guide my heart, guide my mind. I would not say anything you do not want me to, and that you would speak through me to your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I was saying, uh, we come to uh, this letter that that Paul writes to... uh, believers, um, mainly in Ephesus, but it, would all, it was also meant to be, as many of his letters were, meant to circulate among the churches, um, either uh, intentionally or, or just by a simple fact that he knew that they would copy it and that they would spread it around. Um, and so there's a sense that this is also a circular letter. Um, it's recorded for us. But it's somewhat different than Paul's other letters in that he gives this introduction, but then we see, as we have saw over the past few weeks in verse 
verses 3 to 14, this anthem of praise or this doxology or, or uh, this uh, uh, praise him, so to speak, as he blesses God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about all these blessings, these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ uh, through our redemption in him, a, a, a salvation which was uh, uh, determined in eternity past through election, through his predestining us to adoption as sons, as we read it here in, in uh, verse 4 and 5 and, and following, that we also see that it's not just God the Father that initiated our salvation, but it's through Jesus Christ, and that also, the as we saw last week, that the Holy Spirit is also working in uh, redemption. As we can even read in, in uh, the beginning of the Bible and also several parts of the Bible that um, all members, all three members of the Trinity, of the Godhead, are also active in creation. These are active in all parts of uh, you know, redemptive history, in uh, guiding uh, uh, God's people. We even read that... that um, Later on in, in the New Testament that even in the wilderness, the Israelites were, uh, in a sense, led along by Christ, so to speak. Uh, and, and all members of the Godhead are active. They work together. There is one will. And we see that will, in a sense, unfolded here uh, concerning our salvation. And, and Paul explodes into praise. But then he gets down to uh, verse 15. And speaking of the Ephesians and other believers' faith, um, he comments on uh, what he he had just uh, explained to them concerning their their salvation, their redemption, and and how he prays in light of that. And so we we almost get here a hint at this this principle of praying Scripture, which is interesting is uh, some of you may know about this principle or this practice of praying scripture. Uh, there's been books written about it of how we can uh, read a scripture verse. And, and it's, it's probably most easily done through uh, scripture or, or verses like the Psalms, which the Psalms are naturally prayers. But we can do it almost um, any uh, passage of scripture that we can read it and, and see the implications and the applications and, and pray through that. And, and it's interesting that it's almost as if Paul is praying through his own scripture that, that uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit he wrote and was recorded. And he's, he's praying in response to this great salvation which which God had worked out in all believers and in these believers that he is uh, writing to. And he's explaining uh, what he prays for, that this, in a sense, the, the content of his prayers for the Ephesians and other believers, that they would grow in this knowledge of God, which he had just alluded to in the previous uh, 11 verses. One commentator, he writes this concerning uh, verse 15 and 16. He says, For this reason, refers to the earlier praise section. Thus two things spur Paul's prayer, God's great past and present work, and the Ephesians' current faith and love. But Paul still saw their faith and love as God's work, for he gave thanks for it. 
It's interesting. We, we see this uh, as in verse 16. Uh, Paul says he does not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And we also get this concept of, of uh, uh, praying continuously. And it's not as if Paul was always constantly praying for the Ephesians, but um, he speaks about in praying for them and other churches uh, that he, as he would even say to the Colossians in Colossians 1, that he does not cease giving thanks for them because of their faith. And not just uh, because uh, of that they believed, but that God had worked through them uh, to give them faith, to save them, and his work in sanctifying them and, and his love for them. And so there is a sense that he is thanking God for them and for their faith and, and for their work for God and God's work in them. And then he goes on to the content of his prayers. And it's interesting, as, as he is... Uh, uh, commenting uh, almost on the previous passage, there, there's not only this, this principle of praying Scripture, which uh, he uh, alludes to, but there's also uh, mainly um, this sense of worship and uh, spiritual growth or sanctification, how we are sanctified, how we grow in Christ likeness, how we grow in holiness, that it's primarily or it uh, begins with our knowledge, our knowledge of God. Because uh, we are created as worshipers and we are redeemed to worship God as He does all things, as we read in verse 12, to the praise of His glory. That all things he does, the reason why he's created all things, why he redeems things, everything, why he judges sinners and, and will uh, punish his enemies. The reason why he does all things is to the praise of his glory, as we, in, in a sense, uh, also learned in Sunday school this morning about his attributes, his perfections, all point to his glory, and he displays uh, his attributes to us and his perfections to us to the praise of his glory. And part of how we are to grow is through worship, through knowledge, that we cannot worship what we do not know. And so that, that's the main thing Paul prays for them is that they would know him, that they would grow in his likeness and that they would grow in their sanctification and Christ-likeness and in their worship of him. We, we think of sanctification, and, and for the most part, we think of growing in Christ-likeness in terms of things we do. And, and that is part of it, that, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us. And so there's this sense of this synergy of us working out and Him working in and through. But the primary way that happens is through worship is another passage concerning sanctification. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, that unveiled face, that as we come to faith that God removes that veil from us and we are able to see Him as He really is and see ourselves as we really are. Paul goes on, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. 
as we uh, grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God through the word and through the application of the world word that we then uh, uh, are able to worship him more uh, faithfully, more accurately as he really is in that we then grow in our faith and our knowledge and our conformity to Christ. And so in this section, uh, beginning in verse 15, but really as he gets into the content of his prayers in verse 17 and 21, we see four things Paul prays for the Ephesians, things which we, in a sense, should also pray for others and for ourselves. And so that's how we are going to look at this as he begins in 15 and 16, speaking about his prayer for them and the reason why he's praying for them, that they would be built up in his faith. And then he gives us four uh, aspects of his prayers or his unceasing continual prayers for the Ephesians, for other believers as well. Four things that he wants them to know concerning God. First, that they would know him. Know him uh, completely, fully, uh, perfectly. That they would grow in that knowledge. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him. And if we are to grow in Christ's likeness, if we are to grow in our sanctification and our holiness, we, we must know him. And in order to know him, there's only a couple ways that we can come to know him. The primary way is through his word. And Paul would, in a sense, allude to this and unfold this before us, that he prays for the Ephesians and for other believers that they would be given through God the Father, would give them the spirit of wisdom, in a sense, alluding to the Holy Spirit and his work in believers, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that they would know him by two things, by first the spirit of wisdom, and then second by revelation. First, by the spirit of wisdom. This, uh, in a sense, Paul is getting at this uh, doctrine of illumination, that the spirit uh, illuminates our minds, removes this veil, uh, in a sense, transforms our heart as well. This, this spirit of wisdom that is given initially in regeneration as we are born again, and, and the spirit, as uh, we saw last week and in as I often go to John 3 and, and this concept as Jesus unfolds to Nicodemus, this concept of the new birth, of regeneration, of being born again, what it means to be born again, that is by the Spirit, that the Spirit moves wherever He wishes and does what He wishes, but one of the main things He does is regenerates sinners, gives them new life, and as He does that, He indwells us. It is also... Uh, what um, Paul would uh, allude to in the, the baptism of the Spirit in Romans 6, that, that um, even as we celebrate baptism, that is just a picture and a symbol of what God has done within us spiritually. There, there's nothing, uh, in a sense, effective or efficacious of the, the ceremony of baptism, so to speak, that... Just being dunked in water doesn't really do anything to you. It's a symbol of what has been done to you by the Spirit, that the Spirit has baptized you, regenerated you, indwelled you, and you've been baptized into Christ in His uh, uh, death, burial, and resurrection. 
But another key thing the Spirit does is He illuminates our minds. He illuminates our minds so that we can understand, as Paul prays for here, revelation. Revelation of the Word of God and creation. Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians 4. As he, and you can turn there, 2 Corinthians 4, as he is almost, uh, as he does even in 1 Corinthians, uh, defending his apostleship, and, and in that he is teaching them, and he's teaching them here in 2 Corinthians 4 about his ministry, and talking about his gospel ministry, and, and how he just goes out and he preaches the gospel faithfully to anyone and everyone, Despite the reaction or the response or the effects of it, he says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God... Who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul is primarily speaking about his gospel ministry and how he's preaching and even speaks about himself and the other apostles and disciples as clay pots, as earthen vessels, that the power is not inherently in them, but it is in them through the Spirit, and it is the Spirit that gives life. And they carry this treasure, this treasure of the Word of God, that they proclaim, and as they proclaim the Word of God, it's the Spirit that does the transforming power of regenerating, of indwelling, of baptizing, and of illuminating to remove this veil from, uh, from those who are, in a sense, perishing, so that they may be born again. This is the Spirit of wisdom. It's... it's how we may know him through the spirit of wisdom. And it's available also through the, the, the filling of this Holy Spirit that um, when we receive the spirit, we are regenerated, we are indwelt, we are uh, baptized, we are born again. But we're also commanded, as Paul would later say in Ephesians 5.18, that we are to be filled with the spirit. And this is in no way suggesting that the Spirit can leave us if we're born again, but there, it's, it's suggesting that we need more of the Spirit and we are filled by the Spirit. We, we receive more of that filling as we obey the Spirit through the Spirit's Word. That's how this filling happens. It's not as if uh, many uh, in charismatic circles would... Uh, say something about a second blessing or speaking in tongues or uh, other, some other subjective experiences in, in which you are filled or it's evidence that you are filled. This filling of the Spirit, it only happens as we obey the Spirit through the Word and we submit to the Spirit through His Word and we do not grieve the Spirit by uh, disobeying his word. But as we 
are born again and our minds are illuminated and as we walk in holiness and we are filled with the Spirit, we are given initially the Spirit of wisdom, but that wisdom grows as we obey and we understand and it's progressive through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. that We are called to walk in the Spirit in Galatians 5 and also in Romans 8. This is primarily how we know God. Paul prays for this, that that he would give us this spirit of wisdom initially in regeneration and being born again, but then through filling as we would obey and follow him and be filled with the spirit, continually filled with the spirit so that we would obey him and know him. Second, we are to know him. The second thing that Paul prays for is through the revelation that he would give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him. And these two things are connected. As I say, that it is the Holy Spirit who has moved men, as First uh, Peter or Second Peter 1.20, that men of old were moved along by the Spirit, and, and that's how the, the Word of God was written. That it was men did write the Bible, but it was the Spirit that also wrote the Bible. That is, in a sense, this concept of dual authorship. That uh, Paul actually was writing. He wasn't in a trance when he was writing these letters, but it was the Spirit that was also moving through him to write this revelation. And as I said, there's two forms of revelation. There's a general and the special. There's a general revelation that is uh, inherent in creation, that we look at creation, we see a sunset, or we see a sunrise, and we uh, know that that's beautiful. Even though it's subjective, our, our hearts can look at that and glory in that. And, and as Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That we can see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise and say, that is glorious. Or we can look at the night sky and all its glory in the stars and say that is glorious and not only see the beauty in it, but see the form and the function and the wisdom. That is general revelation. And there's also a sense that God has uh, written his law upon our hearts so that we are all moral beings and we know that we are accountable as much as unbelievers may suppress that truth and unrighteousness and push it down, as Romans 1 would say. But nonetheless, there, there is this form of revelation through his creation. Revelation to see and know the creator through his creation. But we can only really know him, only uh, truly know him and be sure of him uh, through his uh, special revelation, through his word, empowered by the spirit to understand it. There's a sense, this concept of, um, as theologians would say, of, spectacles, eyeglasses. (laughs) Many of you have eyeglasses and you need those eyeglasses to see. Uh, You can maybe see without them, but it's fuzzy, it's blurry. And and as many people age, you have to get eyewear. And and I think uh, uh, I'm slowly getting to the point where I may need reading glasses, but many of us, we need to correct our vision. And spiritually speaking, we need our vision corrected. Every, as I said, uh, you know, almost every person, every human being can look at the, the, the sky and see that there's beauty there. But they don't know that it's 
in a sense, from the God of the Bible. They, they might have a sense of God and a creator. And, and even as we see uh, many scientists, as uh, human knowledge is growing, are, are, are moving towards uh, intelligent design. They might not be a believer or, or they might um, uh, believe some other false religion, but they, they cannot deny this design that's inherent in creation. But it's only through the Word of God that we can see clearly that we are given these spectacles to then view the creation and see it clearly for what it really is and know that it is Yahweh, it is the God of the Bible that has done all this. And so Paul prays that the Ephesians and, and every believer since then would know him and know him by the spirit of wisdom given through regeneration, through illumination, through indwelling, and that by the revelation of, of God, uh, that they would be given, in a sense, these spectacles to see clearly, and that revelation also to know and understand God through his word, as the uh, psalmist says in Psalm 119, the word is, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a guide to my, a light to my path. But then there's also a, a sense of, of as I was speaking even in Sunday school this morning, this sense of experiential knowledge, which you have to be careful of because experience is for the most part uh, subjective. But just as you can see uh, the creation and general revelation more clearly through those spectacles by the Word of God, this, through the this power of the Spirit of God, the same is true about your experiences in the Christian life, that we... Uh, we filter our experiences through the Word of God. So that as we go out and we evangelize or we share the gospel or we, um, we, we see that people respond in accordance with God's Word and we see that the Word is true or as we uh, struggle with our own flesh in, in obeying God, we see that the Word of God is true. And so there is a sense of that this uh, revelation to know God through the Spirit-empowered application of His Word. And so Paul prays right from the beginning in response to this great work of salvation and redemption and all the Godhead that, that the Ephesians would grow in their knowledge of him and grow in their knowledge of him by the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge of him so that they would have this full, complete knowledge of him. As Jesus even said in his high priestly prayers, he's praying for the believers He's saying that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he prays that the disciples would know him, that people would know him, and that they would also, God would also uh, further sanctify them in the truth, set them apart in the truth, that they would grow in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. So Paul prays that, the Ephesians and every other believer since then would know him by the spirit of wisdom, by revelation. And then second, the second, uh, in a sense, prayer request or the content of his unceasing prayer is that they would know their hope in him. Their hope in him, that we have an eternal hope in Christ, this, this hope of calling. Verse 18, so that you through knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. 
that, that you have an eternal hope in His calling, in this calling of salvation, in this calling to uh, uh, Christ-likeness, to sanctification in Christ, but also that that calling would end and result in glorification, in Christ-likeness, that we would... Um, one day be completely made new and conformed to his image and that we would get, be given new eyes to see him clearly, uh, to worship him as we were originally intended to, to uh, see him face to face, that we would be in his presence in heaven. This is the hope of his calling, that, that we have uh, been called. Paul wants them to understand this, this great hope, this eternal hope. And it begins with having the eyes of your heart enlightened, or as that song uh, said, a spiritual song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. As I titled this message, open the eyes of their hearts, Lord. This is what Paul is praying, that, that God would open the eyes of their heart, this spiritual sense to understand through the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they would understand this hope that is in him, a hope in Christ, a hope in God, the hope in the spirit, the hope of his calling, calling to salvation, calling to sanctification, calling to glorification. But not only the hope of his calling, but the hope of being called. And it's part of his calling. Sometimes we think of calling, and, and oftentimes I, I hear it a lot more in the, the ministerial circles, you know, being called to the ministry. And, and sadly, that um, sense of the call to the ministry, it's overly spiritualized and mysti mystified. So even now, you, you have people who are clearly going against the Word of God, uh, uh, women preachers who the, the Word of God clearly says that that office is reserved for men, but they can say, well, I've been called, so who are you to say that I'm not called? Well, it's not who I am, it's, it's who God is. It's the Word of God says that you're not called. You're not. <laughs> you, you, I'm sorry. It, it, it doesn't say... It, it, it's, that's not something against your character so much or your being. It's just that's how God has created men and women and he has designed them with certain functions and roles and even his church is ordered in such a way. But we see this sense of calling can be subjectivized or, or experience, mystified and it's all about experiences and I've been called, and I know I've been called because I've been called, and I know, well, how do you know? What's, how, how do you objectively measure that? It's measured by the Word of God and, and by, in a sense, the, the, the people of God. But Paul is speaking primarily, as the Word of God primarily speaks of calling in terms of the salvific call, the call to salvation. This call that goes out into all the world as, as in a sense, is, is uh, uh, said in, in Psalm 19 and in Romans 10. This call that goes out to the end of the world to, to, through general revelation to repent and believe and, and then goes out specifically through God's people as they proclaim the gospel. 
There is this hope of calling, a salvific calling, but the hope of being called, that, that if you are in Christ, you, you remember that you have been called out of darkness into light. You've been called out of the world and into his kingdom. You've been called out of death and into eternal life. You know, in, in this world, in, in life, we hope in all sorts of things. We have hopes and dreams and wishes. And, you know, I... I Early on in my uh, Christian life, I, I would um, go to um, go to cemeteries, and I'd do my devotions. And, uh, and, and primarily it started because I was looking for a nice, quiet place and a, uh, a nice park, and there was this really nice cemetery, and I knew it would be quiet, and it was nice and wooded. But I'd walk am- amongst the graves, and, and I would see these names and the dates, and Obviously, I didn't know who they were, but I knew that they lived and that they died and that they had hopes and dreams like any other person. And we have hopes, but so often those hopes, those dreams are tied to the things of this world and and, and selfish and even sinful desires. But nonetheless, we hope. We inherently hope, and, and no one can live without hope. And you probably heard that saying, you know, you can go, uh, you know, so many days without food and three days without water, but you can't go a minute or a day without hope. And, and uh, you know, there's no way to measure that. But you see, there, there's something to that saying, that we hope in things. You know, if you struggle at work and, and you really don't like your job or you have problems at work with, with a coworker, your hope oftentimes is in the weekend. <laughs> you know, TGIF. You know, I can't, and you're hoping, and that is a real hope, but it's a temporary hope. It's a fading hope because, yes, Friday's going to come and you're going to get out of work and you're going to feel that weight lifted off your shoulder and you're like, oh, like, whew, the weekend, you have hopes and plans for the weekend and for Saturday. And the same is true about vacations or about, you know, saving up money for a home or retirement, that we have hopes. But the hopes of this life are all temporary. They're all temporary. As much as we can enjoy them, we can enjoy a vacation and a weekend and time off, and we can enjoy many of the blessings of this world, they're all temporary. They're all unsure at times because circumstances happen that can dash our hopes. But in Christ and in Christ alone, we have an eternal hope that is sure that is imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us, incorruptible, as Peter would say. It's, it's interesting, and I've shared this, this passage many times, but it's interesting as we read uh, beginning in Ephesians in this section in verse 3, uh, Peter says somewhat of the same thing in 1 Peter 1. And I'd like you to turn there and just be reminded of this passage and this hope He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Speaking of of Christ, that that He has been resurrected, that He defeated death, this uh, alluding to eternal life, this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. 
he goes on, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the hope that Paul prays that we would understand more fully, that we would know more fully the, the hope of his calling. And, and like that, it, it, it just related to that, is this third thing that he prays for. He, he prays that they would know him through the spirit of wisdom and by revelation, and, and that they would know their hope in him, the hope of his calling, the hope of being called, but that they would also thirdly know that they, their riches in him, that they would know their riches in him, that they have a storehouse of riches in him through this inheritance. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? You know, most people, and especially men, um, we grow up, and especially, you know, in our teenage years and then later on in most of our life, that we are chasing riches. We're chasing treasure. And, and even, you know, there's uh, uh, shows about treasure hunters, but there's a sense that this, this concept of, of treasure and riches, and, and, and there's some truth to the fact that uh, money does answer a lot of problems. Solomon would even say that in Ecclesiastes, that money answers everything. And it's not exactly true that it answers everything, but it answers a lot of problems. Like there's a lot of things you can do with money. If you have money, and even from a, a ministry perspective, even within the church, you know, a church with a large budget and large savings can do a lot of things. You can hire more ministers. You can, uh, you know, have more stuff, more resources, more books, more curriculum. You can expand your building. You can support more missionaries. There's things you can do with money. But as you know, the hope of this world, the same is true for the riches of this world, that eventually it will fade away. It will grow wings and fly. But we have true riches. We have a, a, a true treasure in heaven that, that is linked to our inheritance in him. But as I, I, I said a, a, a few weeks ago, speaking in verse 14 of this pledge of our inheritance, rather a couple weeks ago in this inheritance that Paul would speak about, that this inheritance is, is primarily uh, Christ. Yeah, as we read about inheritance, there is this dual aspect. It's primarily about Christ, that we are his inheritance. We are a gift of the Father to the Son, that he has sent him to redeem a people for himself, zealous for good works that we are his inheritance, but there's also a sense that, that he is our inheritance, uh, that, that we will be given a, a kingdom. Uh, uh, we are adopted into his family, and as sons, as he is a, a son, as Christ is a son to the Father, that he is given this inheritance, that we as sons also uh, uh, receive that inheritance as well, a, a kingdom, a, a family, one another. 
And there's riches in that. Riches of His glory, that inherent glory that is within Him. The, the glory that is revealed to us through Him. And then the glory that we will receive as we are remade in His likeness and glorification. That we are conformed to His image. But also the riches of His inheritance. His inheritance in you. Being His people. Redeemed. And that we have a family. We have a spiritual family. We have a father. As we are called is to pray. Even Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our father in heaven. That we've been adopted into his family. And, and that's part of our inheritance. That we have been adopted and we have a father. We'll be given this inheritance. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know and we would know and grow in our knowledge of Christ and this great redemption we have and all the things, not just being saved from an eternity in hell, but being saved to an eternity in heaven and an eternity with him. That we would know him by the spirit of wisdom and by revelation, that, that we would know our hope in him by the hope of his calling, the hope of being called, that we would know our riches in him the, through the riches of his glory and the riches of in his inheritance. And then fourth, he wants the Ephesians and he wants us to know and he prays for this knowledge that we would know the power in him. This power in him, this power that which worked in and through Christ in raising him from the dead, verses 19 to 21. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the one to come. And... It's interesting how he uh, has ordered these things that he prays for, beginning with knowledge, and then hope, and then riches, and then power. And, and you know, in going through each one of these, knowledge, hope, riches, power, you can almost question, you know, even knowledge, because we, we aren't, you know, how do we know what we know? How do you know what we know? We know things, but how, do you, how are you sure of what you know? And even in terms of spiritual things, how are we sure we know, as I was speaking about uh, spectacles, that we can rightly view creation? There, there's things we know about creation, know about this world, but how can we be sure of that? It's only through his word, and we can be sure of him through his word, but nonetheless, we could question our knowledge, and we could even question our hope at times, and we waver in our hope, and we uh, could even question our inheritance in him, our spiritual inheritance, and, and even what's in heaven. And uh, there's a sense that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And, and as uh, Paul would say, what, what no eye has seen or ear heard, what God has prepared for them. There, there's a sense there's a lot of mystery of what's in heaven awaiting for us, and, and we don't know, and we could waver in our faith. And many of us, we do waver in our faith, and some of us have stronger faith than others 
But he ends this list of things he prays for in the sense with that they would understand the power of God, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, so that in understanding his power, we, we would uh, have more assurance in the hope of his calling and more assurance in the riches of the glory of his inheritance and, and more assurance in a sense this spirit of wisdom and the, the, the power of his word. He wants us to know the power in him and that this power uh, was primarily displayed in raising Christ from the dead. The great uh, power that he worked in Christ. This dynamic power, this power to save and power to raise. And also alluding to the fact that this is the same power that is at work in us to, uh, to save us, to sanctify us, that we will be raised as well and glorified as well as we are united with Christ in, in baptism and, and that he uh, dying, that we being united in him die as well. That's what baptism symbolizes. And that as he was raised, we will be raised as well, all according to the working of God's power, this surpassing greatness of power, his might. In a sense, confirms everything else that comes before it. But it's not just the power that has worked in and through Christ, but it's also the power that Christ has to work it's not just the dynamic uh, power to save and to raise and to sanctify, but it's also the positional power, the position of power, that, that Christ has been given power and authority, that he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, that that Christ is, has authority over it all. He has power to rule. He has power to save, power to rectify, power to reign. And no one, no thing can thwart his power. Can say, why have you done this or that? Or, or, or question him. And there is a sense that we don't fully see his power now because he is in heaven, but one day he will return to rule and to reign in righteousness and he will destroy all his enemies and he will put them under his feet and he will rule and reign in righteousness and he will redeem this creation and a kingdom for himself and for us to serve him and we will see his power displayed. But right now we see it in a, a spiritual sense in salvation, this miracle of regeneration and salvation. And we believe in this power that God raised him from the dead. And we, because he raised him from the dead, we will be raised as well. Paul, in a sense, speaks to this in, in several passages. One in Philippians 3 as he is speaking about our citizenship in heaven, that he is willing to forego all things for the sake of Christ, that he's willing to sacrifice all things, that he may know Christ more. And he says this in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
That's what our focus is in to be, to be on. Our, our hope is in. That's where our riches are in heaven and our citizenship is in heaven. And, and we hope in God and, and his power, as he says in Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working through which he is able even to subject all things to himself. This power of God through Christ and the power that Christ has, this positional power to rule and to reign. But also, not just the fact that he has power as some uh, uh, just omnipotent despot that, that is, is cold and calculating, that he just... He is, as I said in Sunday school this morning, talking about sovereignty. That you can look at sovereignty in a, in, in a way as you know, a, a prideful, unbelieving human being who wants their own sovereignty and wants to govern their own lives. And you can look at God's sovereignty and, and bristle against it because you, you want to be in control rather than him in control. But when you understand that he is good and loving and kind and merciful and gracious... That sovereignty, the sense of his sovereign power brings comfort and is something that we can rest in and hope in because he's been given power to serve and to sustain and to secure his people for himself. I like what one commentator wrote concerning Christ's power and his position, his position of power. He says this, Christ enjoys his position as head over everything for the sake of the church. Not only is Christ at the most exalted position in the universe, he is there representing believers and governing the universe for their sake. The principles of conduct in Ephesians emphasize that authority exists for the sake of service. Jesus' majestic use of power and authority in the interest of his people is a Christian's model. That we are saved to serve and we are to follow Christ. We're saved to be conformed into his image. And even, you know, we read in the Gospels that even though he uh, is God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, as we read in Philippians 2, but emptied himself and took on the form of a slave or a servant, a human being, in the likeness of human flesh. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, to sacrifice and to serve his own people, his own creation. And we even read in the... Uh, in the Gospels that he uh, girded himself with a towel and humbled himself and washed his disciples' feet. And even Peter would say, no, Lord, not, not, not me. And he said, he said if, if I do not wash you, then you are not clean. And he says, well, not my feet only, but my head and everything. But there's a sense that you know, we are to follow Christ in his service to others, and, and even in our uh, position as believers. There's a sense of this spiritual wisdom and knowledge and hope and riches of inheritance and this power of 
being his, of the power that was displayed in raising us and regenerating us, and he will raise us from the dead, but we are to serve as he served. Understand his power. All this greatness of the glory of God that Paul wants the believers to understand and to know that they would grow in their worship of him and Christ-likeness. As I commented many times and many others have commented on this, um, you know, you look at Paul's magnum opus, his magnum opus of uh, Romans, so to speak, and it's kind of hard to pit one writing against, and it's all scripture, Um, it's all uh, profitable, as even he himself said, but uh, nonetheless, you can look at his letter to the Romans as this magnum opus as he unfolds God's uh, redemptive plan through the gospel, beginning with the sinfulness of mankind that all are sinned and, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are condemned, but by the grace of God and through faith in him, we can be born again. And then he gets, in a sense, almost to the exact middle of that letter and we have what many uh, theologians would say that, that uh, Romans 8 is the, the, the diamond or the jewel in this crown of uh, the whole letter. And, and uh, many of us know this verse and, and, and go to this verse. And you should go to Romans 8 time to time. I go there often when I am discouraged and to be comforted and to know the hope of my own calling and, and the Spirit's work in my own life and the lives of people all around me and, and just everything that, that God did in saving me and that all began with Him. And then at the end of that chapter, we read this. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Paul wants the Ephesians to know. This great hope of his calling. The riches that are theirs in him by in a sense, the power that has raised him from the dead. And if you don't understand this, or maybe you waver in your faith and you're prone to anxiety, worry, and fear, and frustration, and anger at the things in your life or the things in the world, then you need to go to Scripture and examine yourselves. See whether or not you're walking in faith or in the faith. Some here may not have this hope. And the answer is always the same. Repent and believe. Recognize that you are a sinner, that you have sinned against God, that you deserve his righteous wrath. But God is not only holy and righteous and just and perfect, but he's also Uh, gracious and loving and kind and forgiving. And he demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a hope for everyone outside of Christ and that is a hope for everyone in Christ. That we have an eternal hope fixed in heaven for us. And if you do not know this hope, then you are to call upon him. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near that you may know him.
Heavenly Father, you've given us such a, a great hope, a great riches, great inheritance. And for many of us here who do know you and have this hope, we still waver in hope at times. We're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're tempted by circumstances. We're tempted by besetting sins to find pleasure and hope in the things of this world, to find our comfort and our security in the things of this world. And all those things are temporary. We might find uh, security or comfort and riches uh, for a time, but it will soon fade away. And for those of us here who that is their sole basis for any hope because they don't have hope in you, pray that by your spirit you would convict them and cause them to be born again that they may know you. Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of this great calling that we would honor you in all that we think, say, and do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.